uh, I think we can mention many cases in which uh, pieces of research that perhaps started off just as an idea ended up being major input into our work. Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. I guess every researcher should be thrilled to hear such a quote. It shows that the work the academic community is doing is actually being heard by anti-corruption practitioners. In today's episode, Matthew sat down with Roberto Di Michele and Francesco Di Simone from the Inter-American Development Bank, or short IDB. Before we dive into this episode, let me give you a quick rundown of what you can expect over the next 15 minutes. First, the interview goes into detail about the work of the IDB and how their efforts are evaluated. Second, Roberto and Francesco talk about some major surprises that they experienced in their anti-corruption efforts. In the third part, they discuss how research can inform the work of anti-corruption practitioners. And last but not least, The interview covers the current state of corruption in the Americas. So, without further ado, over to Matthew. This is Matthew Stevenson, and I'm thrilled today to have the opportunity to visit the Inter-American Development Bank, or IDB, located in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined today for this episode of the podcast by two IDB officials who work extensively on corruption and anti-corruption issues, Roberto de Michel, a principal state modernization specialist at IDB, and his colleague, Francesco de Simone, also a state modernization specialist. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for joining me for the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Let me start out by asking each of you to introduce yourselves to our listeners, maybe say a little bit about your own backgrounds and what led you to both uh, pursue careers at the IDB, but also in particular uh, to develop your interests in anti-corruption and good governance issues generally. Francesco, you go first. Uh, well, you know, um, uh, Matt, as an Italian, uh, I kind of always felt that corruption was a big part of life, if you will. Uh, I am I'm coming from southern Italy, so, you know, I have many anecdotes that I could talk about, about how certain corruption, small experiences, small things has uh, entered into uh, into my life. But the way uh, the way things worked out for me was that Uh, when I was uh, 26, moved to the U.S., uh, got my second master's uh, here at George Washington University. And around that time, I started getting interested in um, organized crime issues uh, and um, drug trafficking, a number of different things. Uh, around that time, I applied actually for a job at the IDB uh, in the External Relations Department and, and then made the transition into the Office of Institutional Integrity, which is the internal compliance office uh, um, of the IDB. And I was lucky enough that I was still uh, in university. Uh, I was in my second year um, of, my, of my master's. And so I geared almost all of my academic work uh, in, in my second last year towards corruption. So it was very uh, uh, serendipitous from that point of view. Uh, and then from that, it has become sort of my uh, my major area of focus. Uh, I was lucky enough that I worked for Transparency International uh, after IDB, then at the U4 um, uh, Anti-Corruption Research Center, 
and then from that came back to IDB. So I, you know, when I look back uh, at the career, I think career is always a bit of a weird uh, word that makes it sound more deliberate than it is. But I did work on, on anti-corruption in, in certain academia, uh, briefly in the private sector and then an international uh, organization. And it's been very useful to have those different experiences. Rebecca? In my case, uh, I'm, I'm a lawyer by training and I started working in the 80s in Argentina, my home country, in uh, as a part of a team of advisors to President Alfonsín, who at that time was engaged in making sure that there was a uh, response to the violations of human rights during the dictatorship. So I worked with one of his legal advisors, Carlos Nino, who by the end of his work with President Alfonsín started a, a research center, and he was very much interested in the idea of why people comply with rules in general and the problem of corruption and cooperation in a society. Then I, I was lucky enough to uh, study here in the U.S. I went to Yale Law School, and, and, and there I, I took a, a deeper interest in, in the idea of, of corruption. Um, I had at that time been in touch and afterwards worked with uh, Luis Moreno Campo, who was the prosecutor in, in The Hague, and uh, he once said, uh, during the dictatorship, people disappeared during a democracy public funds disappear. And uh, we were able as a society to punish those who committed human rights abuses, but it seems a bit more difficult to make something about transparency and integrity. And when I started working in the late 80s, early 90s about this, I thought it would be interesting to look at this problem from different perspectives. So I worked for a few years in Poder Ciudadano, RTI uh, chapter in Argentina. Then I worked for a few years in a law firm, in Luis Moreno Campos Law Firm, working on corporate crimes and investigations of, of corporate crimes. Then I work in the public sector. I helped set up the anti-corruption office in Argentina. Then in the early 2000s, I came to the U.S., applied for a job here at the IDB, and uh, I was, I was uh, selected. That was 16 years ago. I worked with Francesco initially in the Office of Institutional Integrity, which is the compliance office. We started there 12, 13 years ago, the Transparency Fund, a, a multi-donor fund with the Norwegian government, the Swedish, the Italian, and the Canadian government. And then uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I transitioned in the bank into the operations side, which means we, we do the loans, we do the technical assistance, and, uh, and everything that has to do with uh, knowledge products as well. And uh, I am now, for some time, the person running the transparency and integrity cluster at the bank where Francesco and I worked together again. We reunited after a few years uh, with uh, you know, less hair, more experience, I would say. <laughs> so I'd like to hear a little bit more about exactly what the operations side, and in particular the transparency and integrity cluster, does. Some of our listeners may be familiar with the IDB generally, but many of them may not. So obviously corruption, integrity, transparency, that cluster of issues is very important in the Americas as elsewhere. But what in particular does the IDB do, can the IDB do to make progress on those issues? Sure. We help our member countries, Latin American and Caribbean countries, with their public sector reforms, but also with some of their private sector reforms that are related to enhancing transparency and integrity. Our, we call it our menu. Our menu covers reforms as general as 
access to information on open government, all the way to more sort of hard-looking stuff as helping financial intelligence units and everything that you may find in between. So, for example, financial disclosure, public sector integrity, strengthening the capacity of supreme audit institutions. Those are the typical policy reforms that you will find in our menu in helping countries. And we help countries through different instruments. Sometimes it's a loan, sometimes it's a technical assistance, which is another name for a non-reimbursable grant, so to speak. We do a lot of uh, publications and knowledge sharing of different types, from the more uh, rigorous academic research to blogs, and we do that a lot. So it's it's a different and wide array of mechanisms that are presented to countries to help them with their efforts. In terms of teams uh, within that big basket that is the anti-corruption and integrity work, uh, when we explain it to the public, so to speak, we like to organize it in four uh, main areas. Uh, one is the what we call financial integrity, which is basically supporting countries with their uh, anti-money laundering and uh, more recently also tax transparency um, issues. Uh, then we work on governance in the extractive sector, uh, which has been, obviously, it's, it's a major revenue generator uh, in the Americas. We work with supreme audit institutions and other uh, what we call control systems, the institutions within the government that are in charge of uh, oversight. And the most recent addition, if you will, I mean, relatively recent, starting in 2012, has been the open government uh, box, which is, uh, uh, if you will, the more diverse box that includes uh, uh, access to information, but uh, really more broadly, everything that is related to uh, the OGP and so on and so forth. So in terms of how other multilateral institutions support or work on anti-corruption or good governance issues, oftentimes they're providing support and assistance to governments that affirmatively want to make progress on these issues and need help, whether in the form of money or technical advice or, or both. In other situations, as of course you well know, some multilateral institutions have used their financial or economic leverage to push for reforms in countries that might otherwise not be so excited about them. So probably the most obvious and familiar recent example is the IMF's involvement in Ukraine, where the IMF put very explicit conditions on uh, loans, but other organizations, including other multilateral development banks, have either explicitly or implicitly attached governance or integrity conditions to some of their funding. To what extent does the IDB also engage in that sort of, call it conditionality or pressure approach? And to what extent is the IDB's work in this area pretty much entirely providing support to governments that are already quite enthusiastic about the efforts and just need some help? We're a bit different from the model you just described. We help countries basically in terms of their commitments regarding international transparency standards. As you're aware, uh, since the early 90s, I think the FATF were the first international standard that then came the American, the Organization of American States Convention Against Corruption, then came OECD, then came ANCAC, and then came a wide array of international standards, EITI, for example, uh, the Global Forum on Tax Transparency, and so on and so forth, that many updates on the FATF standards, and actually the new methodology that not only requires technical compliance, but also requires demonstration of effectiveness. The more recent international standards 
come along with methodology that has an evaluation, or there are other evaluations out there that measure the level of effectiveness of their transparency, like an Article 4 of the IMF or an FSAP of, of the IMF. We work with our member countries in many times based on the results of those evaluations. So even if we do not have a conditionality the way the IMF defines a conditionality, we assume that if a member country is part of that process and accepts the results of that process, there is already a willingness and a desire to engage in that. So we come about that moment in time when the country needs to update their legal framework or their institutional framework to make sure that they are in compliance and they adjust to those standards. So in a, in a kind of elevator type of pitch uh, to how we work, that's the difference between us and, and others. There's, there's a big benefit that we see in that approach that is it, <clears throat> it puts IDB in a slightly more uh, neutral position. You know, we're not the ones defining the standards, but we know them quite well. And we have a long track record of supporting countries in complying with those standards. And, you know, there's something about the standards which makes them especially appealing, if you will, and in that they provide a measurable form of progress. You know, you can, as an external person, you can disagree with the standard, but you will recognize that uh, if a country moved from uh, B to A is doing is now doing better, and it's something that, as you know, is really difficult to do in the anti-corruption sector to to find measurable, achievable goals. Uh, so we see a benefit in that. So I want to follow up on that. I understand that certain issues that that IDB works on are subject to international evaluations that are maybe a little bit more concrete. You, there's the FATF, the Financial uh, Action Task Force evaluations, and, and so forth. But my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, is that your work in this area is broader and that you do have interests more generally on anti-corruption, integrity, transparency generally. On those issues where you don't have something like a FATF evaluation, how do you both diagnose a country's situation in the first place to figure out whether they need your help or what kind of help they need, and also how do you go about measuring progress? Uh, well, um, you know, the, uh, the first thing I would say regarding progress is that, uh, well, alongside uh, the standards, there's also a lot of qualitative work that goes uh, into supporting a country. Uh, we have made it a habit that whenever we start working with a country on any topic, and, you know, more recently, for example, uh, on beneficial ownership, which is an area on which the standards are still consolidating, if you will, we, uh, we first conduct very thorough diagnostics, uh, which basically define a roadmap uh, for uh, future progress uh, uh, as well. Um, so whatever request we receive that does not fit very squarely on into existing standards, uh, we will go out and start with the diagnostic phase. And then uh, the technical assistance is provided based on those uh, initial assessments. And that's how the, um, the progress is also measured. And once the work that Francesco just described is completed, when the bank and the member country sit down to prepare the loan document, that information is translated into a results matrix. So you will have a results matrix with outcomes and outputs of what kind of measures your reforms are going to get to. 
and those are of course public documents so for example let's say you're working on a project uh, that is aimed at creating the capacity to have a certain form of open government let's say salaries of your of, of the civil service or or uh, access to information to financial disclosure then you build a specific indicator for that kind of measure that will be part of your results matrix that is part of your loan so if you don't achieve those results there are multiple ways in which a place like the idb then will check on you and maybe you can reshape your loan or stop dispersing on that until you get the result so it, it becomes more a of an engagement with the client in making sure that the reform is achieved. So to give you a hypothetical example, you could have a case in which we were supporting an anti-corruption agency and one of the outcomes could be the number of investigations uh, or something along those lines. So that's very <clears throat> helpful and very interesting. So when you engage with countries, if you're going to provide loans, for example, or technical assistance, there will be a document that's prepared that says, what are the outputs that we want to achieve? And here's right. the matrix and here's the results. So. A number of questions are naturally invited by that observation. Maybe the first and most obvious is, uh, what does the track record look like? You have this set of public documents that said, you're going to implement this reform, and this is how we're going to measure whether it was successful. Does the IDB do retrospective evaluations and decide you know, what percentage of cases were the targets met, or maybe what percentage of targets is met in a, in, a, in a typical case? So there's a couple of, if you will, meta evaluations that we've done in recent years. Uh, so one of our main tools uh, for providing technical assistance is the Transparency Fund. Uh, the Transparency Fund is a facility that is supported by the governments of Norway, Sweden, Italy, Canada, and, and the MasterCard Corporation. Um, we did uh, a large evaluation of uh, all the technical assistance projects that have been uh, funded through the Transparency Fund uh, over its first 10 years of operation. The fund is now in its 12th year of, of operation. And uh, uh, this is published online on the IDB uh, website. Uh, and if you were to read that, you could find a detailed record of each technical assistance project and the progress that they have achieved. Uh, not because it was, it is our fund, but I, I think the evaluation is overwhelmingly positive in terms of finding concrete progress uh, on behalf of countries. Uh, in the, but in if you sense. would, for example, go to a loan that is not supported by the Transparency Fund on, on transparency and integrity, if there were such a case, you will find that there are at least two ways in which the bank makes sure that there's an evaluation on, on the impact. There's a whole unit in management in the bank that provides support in, in following up on the measurement of the results. And then there's a different department that does not report to management, but reports to our shareholders that will make a final evaluation of the results of each loan. And in between those two processes, you have an instrument, and I think every MDB, every multilateral development bank has basically the same approach. It's called the project completion report. And there you go back to your original design and compare all your results and make, and, and that creates a bit of a track record and a lesson learned. Now, I realize your question was perhaps more specific what are we seeing in terms of results in the region? And this is my summary of what we are seeing. Some of these reforms are 
easier than others from a technical point of view. So, for example, I would say that the whole cycle of access to information legislation, that, that's done in our region, that's completed. We, we have graduated from that. We have now new challenges in that area. So, for example, everything that has to do with targeted transparency related to certain sectors, there's a lot of work to be done there. When you scroll down into the specifics of procurement and procurement of infrastructure, there's still uh, room to improve there. For example, one of the things we learned from a recent research by Eduardo Engel on, on the results of the investigations of uh, the judiciary in Brazil on the Odebrecht contracts is that apparently there was a lot of oversight until the day the contract is adjudicated. Everyone is looking at it, the possibilities of wrongdoing are reasonably low. And then the contract starts its life, its execution. Typically an infrastructure project takes 10 years or more. Comes year four, there's an addendum and nobody's looking. And most of the problems seem to be in that area. Interesting thing, nothing changed in terms of the general legal framework of whether or not that act should be public or not. It seems that it's a combination of perhaps you have to have a different set of rules, but also other incentives when you are doing something in infrastructure. Other areas, technically complicated, but there's you know very little room to pull back. So, for example, Francesco just mentioned reforms aligned with the FATF or the OECD Global Forum. These uh, instruments have, are a very powerful driver for reform particularly since the methodology adopted the, the requirement of effectiveness. And as you are aware, if your country gets listed for not complying, then in addition to the reputational cost to your country, you may face financial and economic costs with international banking relations. So I would say it's difficult to map every reform, but those international standards seem to be a, a reasonably potent driver of reform. I, I would add that uh, I think what we have seen, especially in the last maybe three to four years, is that there is a big box of reforms related to integrity in the civil service that uh, are still incomplete in the region and where there is uh, definitely a lot of room for improvement. And it's a box that includes, uh, for example, regulation of conflict of interest, uh, uh, asset declarations and how they are collected and investigated uh, and the revolving doors between the public and private sector and how uh, people can move uh, back and forth uh, between the two. So I want to move on to other topics in a moment, but I'm still a little bit curious about these evaluation matrices that you've put together. Some of the outcomes that you're interested in strike me as inherently difficult to measure. In procurement reform, for example, you can measure regulations passed, you can measure number of bidders in the contract, but ultimately what you want to know is whether kickbacks are being paid or whether there's collusion. Uh, in the case of other kinds of reform that are supposed to address bribery, for example, you want to know if bribes are still being paid or if contracts are being allocated uh, th through bribery. So can you walk me through how you think about those kinds of evaluation challenges. I mentioned one thing you could do is focus on, I guess, what some people in the jargon call outputs rather than outcomes. Correct. And so maybe that's the answer to the question. But can you talk a little bit more? Ultimately, I assume what you guys care about are these outcomes that are inherently difficult to measure. So maybe one way to frame this is how do you select the measurable outputs 
that you think are good proxies for the outcomes that you really care about and that might take quite a long time to actually be realized in terms of tangible results, longer than the time frame of a typical project. So typically, well, there's a department in the bank that uh, sort of guides, if you will, the process of putting together a results matrix. I would say that our discussion with the operations people with that department, uh, which is the strategic planning department, uh, there is always a tension between the level of ambition uh, in identifying indicators. They always encourage us to be ambitious and trying to identify really the ultimate outcomes, if you will, or the goals uh, of the projects. And uh, part of our job is to uh, remind them that some things are extremely difficult to measure, especially in this area, and that you cannot really apply some of the concepts that you would apply to a health project uh, where you're measuring child mortality to a governance project. Um, so you wouldn't find in any of our transparency and anti-corruption project an outcome that is related to a decreased level of corruption. That is just not uh, possible to measure. But what you, what you will find is uh, intermediate outcomes that could provide you some indication that indeed things are improving. That could be the number of investigation uh, or uh, the uh, management of cases and so on. Or if you are working on an area related to procurement, for example, the, no, the, the increased number of bidders in public contracts of a certain range or the lowering of prices in certain contracts that before had a smaller number of bidders, which, as Francesco is saying, is a proxy that gives you an idea that there's more competition, there's more openness, and in theory that seems to be an antidote for uh, irregular practices. Uh, just as an anecdote, uh, Roberto and I organized uh, maybe three or four years ago a big uh, two-day event here in D.C. on measuring corruption where we brought in not only the people from the Corruption Perception Index, but uh, you know Mitch Seligson, uh, people doing victimization surveys, uh, some of the sovereign rating agencies, and uh, uh, really to get a very, uh, as complete as possible overview of what is going on in terms of corruption measurement. And I think the takeaway the take from that event was that uh, it's really difficult. So I want to pick up, inspired maybe a little bit, Roberto, your comment before about how one of the interesting findings in Brazil was that the real problem seemed to be taking place after the contract was signed. Uh, there are all these renegotiations and so forth. Many people would totally have predicted that, but for a lot of people that might have been a little bit of a surprising finding. And I want to generalize that a little bit by asking, what have you learned in the last you know, decade or so that you've been working in this area that surprised you, in particular with respect to different kinds of reforms? Are there things that worked a lot better than you would have thought? Are there things that you thought would be really effective but turned out to be ineffective? Were there uh, surprises in the form of these were corruption or integrity problems that you weren't really thinking about and then they, then they bubbled up or maybe things you thought were, would be big issues that turned out to be non-issues. I think many of our listeners would be interested to know from your combined many, many years of experience working on these issues, what do you feel like you've learned over the last decade that you didn't know before? Oh my God, where do you even start from? Uh, I would say that uh, one of the most interesting things that uh, I'm taking away, especially from uh, the last couple of years of work in the field, is that uh, 
sometimes the most unlikely entry points for uh, anti-corruption reform, uh, reforms sort of present themselves. So I'm now based in, in Jamaica and I cover a broader portfolio than, than anti-corruption and transparency. And uh, when I first arrived in Jamaica about two years ago, I was a little concerned that uh, my uh, background in anti-corruption uh, and anti-money laundering was not going to be terribly relevant because the portfolio is bigger than that. But then, uh, for example, you start working on uh, projects in the what we call the citizen security area, the crime prevention area, and immediately realize that it is incredibly relevant to the effectiveness of the police, that uh, there is integrity in the police, uh, and that there are uh, recourses for citizens. And so all of that literature and years of looking, for example, at whistleblower policies became immediately uh, relevant. Um, we have a really interesting project focusing on creating a new national identity system uh, in Jamaica. And that project, which is quite complex, has a huge impact on the banking sector because it will make it easier for banks to conduct due diligence on their own citizens and so open more bank accounts and make it easier for banks to be compliant with the FATF. So I think because our agenda is so peculiar and it's so sensitive, uh, one of the big lessons learned has been really that uh, you don't know where you're going to be able to get in, which door you're going to be able to get in through, I guess. I keep learning. And I would say if I were to put your question in terms of the last decade, the big ideas I think that we are seeing in the field are the following. Uh, we are facing something similar to what Italy faced in the 80s with Mani Pulite, Lava Jato being the, the example. So we thought for some time that Latin America was not being able or would not be able to respond from a prosecutorial point of view to crimes of corruption. And we may have to change that view given what Brazil has done. What Brazil has done brings in also a new topic to the discussion is this was not done by a single or a small group of prosecutors. If you look into detail into the Brazilian experience, it was run by a combination of public sector agencies that work as a team. And those public sector agencies were able to be more effective because Brazil had worked on some legal and structural reforms 15, 20 years ago. Uh, the possibility of, of doing pre-bargaining, the possibility of, of having deals with people who would be able to cooperate and therefore break the, the classic uh, um, problem of uh, prisoner's dilemma and so on and so forth. That's, that's something new. The other thing that I, that I see, and uh, I'm, I'm less happy to see it still happening, is the fact that in grand-scale corruption, uh, firms that bribe operate uh, globally, but governments just try to react locally. And I think there's a lot of room to work in enhancing international cooperation in preventing and, and, and investigating corruption. I think we have a pending agenda there. The other thing I learned is, I mean, none of this, as you, as you can see, is rocket science, is that uh, the distinction between grand corruption and petty corruption is very helpful. Because sometimes a country doesn't, or a government does not have the political will or even the political room to maneuver a large-scale reform, but maybe they're able to introduce a reform that digitalizes a permit, a, you know, I don't know, a driver's license or the permit to build something. 
and that may take care of the petty corruption that is related to the way in which permits are, are handled in, in that country. So making those distinctions, as Francesco was saying a, a while ago, having a better understanding of the type of corruption a country has and how you can divide that large picture into smaller pictures, I think has, has given at least a place like the IDB a, a bigger opportunity of engaging constructively with, with the government saying, well, maybe we cannot do something about political campaign financing right away, but the way in which you're giving out a passport or you're giving out vaccines, that can be changed in relative terms more easily than the other type of reform. Something else that <clears throat> comes to mind and I think it will sound uh, like a positive thing to your listeners is that we've always put a lot of emphasis in the connection between the research, <laughs> academic work and the operational work. And, uh, you know, it's not obvious. Some of the research sometimes may sound a little bit abstract, but uh, I think we can mention many cases in which uh, pieces of research that perhaps started off just as an idea ended up being major input into our work. One recent example was a paper that we commissioned on uh, the connection between uh, corruption indicators and uh, sovereign risk rating methodologies. The first time that paper was presented, we were at an event where um, you know people towards the end of the day were sort of uh, uh, starting to look at their phones and losing interest. And then this uh, slide comes onto the screen showing this very strong connection between corruption indicators and sovereign rating quite statistically significant and then silence uh, uh, overtakes the room, pens are dropped and now uh, everybody's attention is, is on the screen and it's it's a paper that has helped us open a lot of doors including with the ministries of finance which sometimes are perhaps not our first partner uh, on the list. I imagine this would get their attention in a way that maybe talking generally about issues of justice and inequality wouldn't get the Minister of Finance's attention the way your sovereign bond ratings are taking a big hit because of your corruption would. Uh, so obviously I have a personal parochial selfish feeling of happiness when you say that you draw on people doing abstract academic research because that's kind of me. Um, another example that I think is terrific and if our listeners are not aware of this I really want to uh, emphasize it. Uh, a few years ago the IDB, and I believe you were both involved in this project, commissioned an expert advisory group uh, composed of a, a big group of very distinguished uh, anti-corruption experts, mainly from the academic community. I was not among them, which I'm saying not because my feelings are hurt, but just so our listeners know that I'm not, this is no not self-promotion. This is not self-promotion. And it was it was really interesting. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrific document. It got a lot of attention outside of what are usually the pretty narrow, very you know, specific groups of people who tend to look at these things. Um, so I'd, I'd be interested in, in you talking a little bit more about how that came about. But in addition to that general question, Roberto, one thing I wanted to note about this is at least my reading of that document, and it may be a, a, a misreading or an unfair reading, but my reading of that document feels like it's at a little bit of tension with what you just said a moment ago about understanding that there's this distinction between grand and petty corruption and that sometimes you can make some positive differences dealing with how passports are being issued or getting certain records digitized or so forth, even if you can't necessarily deal with issues like political finance. Um, one way to read at least some passages in this expert advisory uh, group report is that it's in fact important to take on these big issues that dealing with entrenched corruption involves or requires dramatic 
one might use the word disruptive, although I don't think they use that terminology, structural reform. It requires tackling political finance. It requires tackling a lot of these other issues. And that nibbling around the edges is ultimately not going to address the problem. So again, maybe there's no contradiction necessarily, but I, I experienced a tension between that feel that I got from the report and what you just said a moment ago. And so there are two questions here. One is I'd love to hear a little bit more about the genesis of this very interesting and, and frankly, in this world, somewhat unusual document. But maybe, Roberto, I'd also ask, like to ask you, and Francesca, I'd love your views on this as well, about what I perceive as a tension between these two perspectives on how the IDB in particular should be working on this issue. Uh, it's, uh, I, I think it's fair that, the, that you think there is a tension because it, it is a very unique document in the sense that when President Moreno commissioned this document, the terms of reference were, were very explicit. This is not a report about the IDB. This is our, we want to learn from experts what the problem looks like and what are the things that should be done, not just by the IDB, but maybe for a new government or, or someone in transition or whoever. So the document is not for us as an MDB, but it can, comes under the, the umbrella of being a public good. Any, anyone can use this document. The experts had total freedom and liberty to write whatever they wish and wanted. And, and actually, Francesco and I worked as their liaison point with, with the bank and only helped them in terms of you know making it public and, and that kind of, of stuff. And it was a very, very interesting experience, and I believe, for both of us because we had the great advantage of seeing these eight experts from very different fields. I hope someone noticed this, but... They were selected in order to cover different points of view on this issue. So you have people who have an expertise on the role of civil society. You have people in the group who have an expertise on, on fiscal issues. You have people who have an expertise on criminal investigation. Others have a background on, on the extractive sector. It's a very diverse group, although they all share this idea that they, are, they have a, a ton of experience in, in, in their backs. So... It was very interesting to see how the eight of them worked for a bit more than one year in putting this document together. At the end of the day, they decided that even though the president did not ask them to write about the IDB, as you can see, there's there's a chapter related to international organizations. They said it would be a pity if we make these recommendations vague and general and do not suggest something to an entity like like yours. I think their suggestions and, and their approach is, is one approach. Others, like yourself, uh, bring uh, a, a different perspective to this discussion that I think is also very interesting. Uh, some people believe, like the experts do, that maybe you're better off with a big bang theory type of approach, that you need to take advantage of an opportunity and produce a structural reform. But others, like you, suggest that we should not leave aside the idea of having incremental reforms. Even they look, uh, you know, quote-unquote, like small-time reforms or, or marginal reforms. I could argue, for example, that the experience of Brazil is the result of incremental reforms, that there were a set of decisions being made 15 years ago, 10 years ago, that eventually created the conditions to have a large-scale investigation in a high-level case. I don't think those views are exclude themselves, I think they perhaps share more in common than what we think they don't. 
I would add that, uh, you know, I think it is natural that the expert advisory groups report would uh, take on the challenge of the, uh, the, the, the high level, the, the grand scale corruption. For us, the focus on uh, petty bribery or whatever you want to call it, we, you know, I think a better way to put it would be corruption at the point of service delivery, in addition to also some of the bigger challenges is an issue of opportunity. Uh, sometimes we get called in to focus on strengthening the delivery of public services, and that opens the door for us to do some work uh, with lower scale corruption. And you don't want to miss that opportunity, uh, including because it has a very immediate uh, effect on citizens and on their perception of what uh, the government is capable of doing in terms of delivering services. Let me ask another question. It's sort of about the expert advisory group's report, but we can generalize it a little bit. And it's it's in the same spirit of the question I asked you earlier about surprises or lessons learned in your in your ten years of work. So, the way I would ask this question specifically about the report is: What if anything in the report caused you to rethink or reconsider your own views about the right way to engage on anti-corruption issues? Were there any things in there that made you go, "Huh, hadn't <clears throat> thought about that. I need to rethink something." But I can broaden it because, Francesco, as you were saying, that you with the IDB and your colleagues engage with academics and draw on academic work in other contexts as well. So we can, if you can't think of something about the expert advisory group report specifically, I'd be interested in whether there's any research, scholarly research or research done by your own colleagues internal to IDB or elsewhere that's in some substantial way caused you to alter or rethink your perspective on some important issue related to anti-corruption. I don't know if this changed my perspective, but I definitely confirmed it in one direction. I'm going to describe an anecdote. We had periodic meetings with the experts here in Washington. So they, it's eight of them. So they would talk in order, speak in order. And, and uh, one of them, uh, he, it was his turn was the last one. And by the time uh, it was his turn, he he was all the time he was writing on a small iPad or iPhone or something. I said, well, you, while you guys were discussing about this issue, I opened up an account and I transferred a virtual currency from one country to the other uh, from my account in, in this country. Most of that uh, went unnoticed for the uh, agencies that are regulating and supervising the financial sector. So the, the big call is, oh, we are all, all behind the hype of, for example, digital currencies. Some of us thought, let's think about this a bit more carefully. And Having this example for from people who are really experts on one feel like there may be issues here that bring risks that we're not aware of. Let's not get too excited about the benefits of some of the things. Same thing with uh, blockchain or, or some of these technological solutions that may be very interesting on paper, but sometimes your public policy problem can be solved with much simpler solutions than going... Uh, overboard with fancy, expensive things that maybe you're not ready to implement. So that's one of the things I, I confirm kind of from, from my thinking. The other, the other one, which, again, sometimes we miss it because we are too narrowly focused on, on beneficial ownership of something. But at the end, they, we don't need to give up the idea that this has always a systemic uh, entrance. So the, the, the distinction I made at the beginning between large corruption and, and petty corruption. I'll give you an example how they are connected. Every large infrastructure project that I am aware of around the globe depends on a large scale of small permits. 
environmental permits, construct, and those are at the local level. In most countries in our region, those are done physically and are given by a small municipality or a small local entity. Taking care of that type of reform may alleviate a lot the pressure on improper payments in the execution of an infrastructure project. Uh, I have at least a couple of examples that come to mind, uh, Matt. One is at the very beginning of my uh, career, so to speak, when we were working at the Office of Institutional Integrity at the IDB, and we we're really grappling with the issue of measurement. Around that time, the papers by Ben Olken came out on uh, the audits of road construction in Indonesia. And I think what those papers showed is that basically can be done. It's expensive, it's difficult, it requires a lot of work, but you can find really strong ways of measuring uh, indicators that at least indicate uh, or provide the proxy for corruption. More recently, and this has is, got is a bit of a personal twist, if you will, the work that my friend and, and colleague Paul Lagunas, uh, Dr. Lagunas from Columbia University has done in Peru is quite interesting in that I came out of civil society a few years ago and I think over my time at IDB I had developed a slightly more nuanced view of what impact civil society can have uh, in terms of oversight of the public sector. I mean I recognize that there is one but I was always very skeptical regarding uh, our ability to be able to measure that. But Paul's study in Peru over many years uh, with a lot of information basically showed from a quantitative point of view that indeed there is uh, an oversight effect uh, when uh, uh, the Office of the Controller General basically sent letters saying civil society will be looking at the specific infrastructure project. Uh, he showed that indeed uh, there was uh, better implementation, let's put it like that. You've been very generous with, with your time and, and we're basically reaching the end of, of, of the time that we have. But before we close, I wanted to ask one more general question, and it really goes to the state of the fight against corruption in the Americas. If you look at what's happening now and if we're to try to project forward over the next decade or so, and I understand especially because you work at the IDB and these these governments are your, your members and shareholders, I don't want to ask you about the state of the issue in any particular country. But let me ask the question broadly in regional terms. And maybe I'll frame it like this. So if you can, I'd like to hear both your optimistic take and your pessimistic take on the state of corruption in the Americas, both the glass half empty version and the glass half full version. If you were going to try to lay out, if you were being more pessimistic, the things that you're most worried about that keep you up at night, the challenges, obstacles, and so forth, what would they be? And then maybe turn that around so we could try to end on a little bit more of an optimistic note. What do you think are the greatest opportunities or encouraging signs or trends that you think can be further developed to make progress on this? So uh, I hope that's that's clear and I hope that's fair, but I'd very much like to close our conversation sure. by hearing you step back and <clears throat> take a little bit more of a big picture, long view of how you think things are developing in the region. So Francesco, maybe I can start with you. You know, I've been uh, saying it more and more uh, as I'm getting older that I think I see a lot of our role, my role, uh, working on anti-corruption and governance in general as quasi-pedagogical, if you will, in that we always need to remind our partner government, civil society, the people in the countries where we work, 
that institutions building is intrinsically a long-term process. And uh, a friend recommended uh, years ago this book uh, that is called The Shame of the Cities uh, that talks about uh, the beginnings of the U.S. It's about a few uh, investigations around the, the, the start of the 20th century. So I'm talking about 100 years ago, not thousand years ago uh, and uh, the spread of corruption in in cities like Minneapolis or St. Louis or Boston uh, was just uh, overwhelming uh, incredible to read I, I knew nothing about it before I read the book uh, what that does show you is that uh, over a hundred year you will certainly have an improvement uh, uh, in um, in the quality of institutions it's not inevitable you have to work for it uh, but you can get there. And uh, we are always confronted in our working countries with uh, a lot of disillusionment uh, regarding the ability of uh, reaching a better state in terms of anti-corruption. And, and when, when I see that, uh, my, message, my message is always, remember, this will take time. And, you know, I think, I think it's undeniable that if you look at the region today, versus where it was uh, say in the mid 80s that you can see a lot of a lot of er of areas of improvement uh, there's this really good book um, good study that came out of the inter-american dialogue uh, a couple of years ago called beyond the scandal uh, that makes precisely that argument with a lot of uh, uh, evidence it's it's a really good study that <clears throat> i think provides a, an excellent overview of the situation what I'm worried about is that when, you know, it, it's a cyclical thing. It's a cyclical trend in which we see up and down, but overall an improvement. But when we reach the downs, I think what we have seen uh, is that the political turmoil or the economic impact can be so negative that sometimes it can undo uh, even some decades uh, or reforms. So that's what I think would... Uh, would worry me that hopefully even in the times of crisis we can find uh, the mechanisms to maintain, to sustain some of the reforms. I, I agree with Francesco. I tend to be positive about the outlook of uh, the future outlook. I think uh, <clears throat> we have uh, built some experiences in our region that are not going back. So, <clears throat> sorry, everything that has to do with access to information Everything that has to do with open government, I think that's uh, something that is there to stay. Things, areas where I believe we could be doing a bit better is coordination in criminal investigations, coordination about among jurisdictions to enhance information sharing. I think we could do also better in agencies that are tasked with prevention. We always have this tendency to talk about cases and and bribery and, and and somebody in jail, but let's think about the system that prevents this from happening. I think that should be one of the of our uh, agendas, permanent agendas. Perhaps not again, not as sexy as criminal law reform, but more sustainable, more long term. And we try to make sure that then we we learn from our from our mistakes and and try to avoid them in in the next run. I think there's an additional element. It's a it's a very difficult to go both ways. Societies in our member countries are now more sophisticated, more educated. There's a larger middle class. That implies that there's in in general a higher awareness and concern about 
how public resources are used, especially because middle classes pay taxes, and therefore they have an incentive to ask about where those taxes are going to. It's not only about how they it's being collected, but also how that is being spent. And I think this, when you put these things together, you see that the conditions to sustain change are, are going to be out there for the long run. Again, I, I totally agree with Francesco. This is not a 100-meter sprint. This is a marathon, and you have to train for it. Well, I certainly appreciate both the optimism and the reminder about how difficult a challenge this is and how it needs to be thought of as a long-term process. And I very much appreciate both of you taking time out of your very busy schedules to speak with me and speak uh, with our listeners about the work that you and the IDB more generally are doing. So um, thank you both very much. This has been Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast, and I just want to express once again my gratitude uh, to Roberto de Michel and Francesca de Simone of the Inter-American Development Bank. Thank you both so much. You're thank welcome. You. Thank you. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you want to take a deep dive into the topics that Matthew, Roberto and Francesco discussed, please check out the show notes of this episode. We will provide some further links there. I would also like to mention two other points. Towards the end of the interview, Francesco mentions the academic work of Paul Lagunes. Luckily, we already recorded an interview with him in an earlier episode, so go back and check it out. The interview also mentions the Transparency Fund. It was founded in 2007 as a joint effort of the IDB and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. On their website it says, quote, the fund supports institutional and regulatory reforms to improve transparency and integrity. They do so by focusing on four major strategic areas. First, control systems. Second, financial integrity third, open government, and fourth, governance of natural resources. If you want to learn more, check out the link in the show notes. Finally, some kickback housekeeping. Last week, Frank tweeted us some great suggestions for future guests, so thanks a lot, Frank. We already reached out to one of them to record an interview in March, so if you have any further comments or suggestions, uh, please reach out to us. We will try to pick up on your comments as fast as possible. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter under at kickbackgap or simply write us an email to info at icrnetwork.org. Before we end, I would also like to take the opportunity to thank our Patreons for supporting us. You really, really help us moving this project forward, so thanks a lot. Another great way to support us is by writing us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kubis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me. My name is Christopher Starke. See you next time.